Yeah, welcome to everybody joining us today. We'll start in just a short while on a fantastic topic on top of everybody's mind. It's cybersecurity. Uh, thanks for those that are already dialed in. A quick reminder before we start, um, we have at least 15 to 20 minutes reserved for your questions. So please make sure you use the Q&A function, not the chat function, the Q&A function, where you can post your questions and can upvote other questions. When you see, okay, that's a great question. We should definitely get to that. Please help us to upvote them. That makes it much easier for us to see uh, what's on everybody's mind. And uh, as uh, for those that are dialing in again, uh, we're today on episode eight, and you know, we really have uh, a lot of time for questions from uh, the attendees. And that's, uh, I think, one of the big pluses of Southeast Asia Connect, right, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this show is for you guys, the attendees, and thank you so much for continuing to join us on this journey. I can't believe it's actually episode eight. Uh, one of the reasons why it's very important that you put your questions in and we can see which ones are upvoted. Very often, um, there are unfortunately questions that we, we, we can't cover. So if you put your questions in early and make sure it's all there in the same place, we can make sure that the most popular questions and we try to get as many questions out there answered. Uh, least thing you want to happen is for me to ask all the questions, which uh, is, is not sh sure is uh, would be a very entertaining space, Lars. <laughs> Good. So uh, let's get the party started. Welcome to Southeast Asia Connect episode eight. This webinar and podcast series is for founders and investors of Southeast Asian startups connecting the Southeast Asian ecosystem to the world. This series is brought to you by Northridge Partners and Precious Communications. My name is Lars Fudisch. I'm a stor professional storyteller, economist by studies, but uh, um, really enjoy working with, I think by now, roughly 400 startups in the region. And um, yeah, so let's look who's the co-host. As every week, it's the, the man with a middle name, Danger. Here's Chris Tran. <laughs> Well, I'm Chris Tran, head of Northridge Partners, where we work with Southeast Asian entrepreneurs to raise capital, grow their businesses and exit. On today's topic, cybersecurity, the next battleground. Cybersecurity is on everyone's lips right now. And according to CB Insights, there are over 7,000 data breaches alone in 2019. There's an increase in sophistication of cyber attacks across corporations. And the most affected industries are information technology, healthcare, and finance and insurance. Threats created by disinformation and other campaigns have created a huge amount of insecurity. These challenges create opportunities for the next generation of cybersecurity startups, the cyber defenders. The global view on cybersecurity deal activity, a record high of 10 billion of funding and 770 deals were done in 2019, which compares to less of half of that in 2015. Investments have remained strong and bullish with the most active investors globally being Lightspeed and Excel. It's no longer a question of course, if, but when will there be a cyber attack? And in this webinar, we're delighted to uncover and get to understand why the threat of cyber attacks is actually greater than ever in a post-COVID world. Get familiar with basic terms such as malware, DDoS, firewall, phishing, 
white hat and black hat and get to understand why there's a few solutions to those attacks. Our two experts are Forget the Money, Koyi, co-founder and managing partner at Monks Hill Ventures, a leading early stage of the dream. And for Build the Dream today, we have Paul Haji, CEO and co-founder of Harangi Cybersecurity, a Singapore-based cybersecurity company that offers an integrated software as a service SaaS security platform that has raised over US $23 million. Paul is a true global citizen, having worked at a small company called Palantir Technologies across the US, mm -hmm. Korea, New Zealand, and Afghanistan. He was also head of information security at Grab. And last, to really kick off, let's get into today's poll. Yes, so today's poll is, of course, the poll, not the poll. <laughs> today's poll <laughs> By the way, Paul, thank you for joining. <laughs> Cybersecurity, a threat deadlier to businesses than the pandemic has been. Deadlier to businesses. No, it's just fear-mongering. Yes, we will see the effects, just not sure when, or the effects can already be seen. So today's poll is uh, cybersecurity, a threat deadlier to businesses than the uh, pandemic that we are seeing. So please key in your answers. And uh, we have a little bit of melody for that. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, finish the poll. Jump, jump, jump. Finish. Okay, cool. So um, let's have a quick result, quick look at the at the results. Where do we? Yes. Wow. Uh, astonishing. Uh, Fifty-three percent say we will see the effects, just not sure when. I think that's a whole question about it. it's not the if but when question. So over to you, Chris. Fantastic. So we're now going to dive into how Koyi and Paul are going to save us all. So Koyi, for those that have been living under a rock and don't know who you are or about Monks Hill, uh, just a bit of a background on your career and how did you end up uh, forming Monks Hill and uh, what is Monks Hill all about? So that'll be great. Yeah, thanks everyone for the opportunity and, and great to, uh, to meet everyone uh, online. Um, yeah, my name is Koi. I'm one of two founding partners at Monk Steel Ventures. Uh, we started the firm in 2013. Uh, prior to that, you know, my partner and myself, uh, we were venture capitalists in different capacities. I was running Infocom Investments for the government of Singapore. Um, and before that, actually, I was uh, involved uh, in, together with my partner uh, in a company called Accentuate, which was an information security company. So we spent about six, seven years building you know, a uh, security infrastructure business that eventually was acquired by IBM in 2009. So we are walking the journey, we walk the journey that Paul is walking right now at Horangi. Um, before that, you know, I was, uh, I was a, a consultant uh, with the Boston Consulting Group and uh, had the background in engineering. Uh, Monster Ventures is really about, you know, entrepreneurs like myself and my partner uh, helping other entrepreneurs. Uh, we bring capital to the table, but we you know, believe that we also bring many years of uh, uh, operating experiences as well uh, in terms of what we've seen before uh, and, and helping you know, fellow entrepreneurs like Paul uh, uh, build a scalable uh, uh, big business. You know, in terms of what we look for, generally speaking, we have been invested across 
different sector now, but we're very focused on Southeast Asia uh, startups, early stage companies. Uh, if you look at our 25, 26 portfolio companies, we're pretty spread out across different spaces. Cybersecurity is one of them, we have logistics, we also have FinTech and other areas as well. So we're a very bottoms up kind of investor. We like to understand every single business at its root, really get to know the founders really well and get conviction in both the business and the founder. And so I think Paul and Horangis is one good example of that. So happy to be here today. Right, thank you very much for that introduction. And, you know, continuing on to the theme of uh, Monks Hill really being that ground up and understanding the business fundamentals. Uh, can you tell us about the journey of uh, getting to know Paul's business, the attraction of uh, cybersecurity, and a little bit of that thinking behind backing Paul and his business. Yeah, yeah. I think generally speaking, we have always believed in you know investing in the underlying enabling uh, businesses for digitalization and and the growth of internet and and its effects across the economy. And cybersecurity is clearly one building blocks of that. You know, my partner and I were beneficiary, uh, you know, we, of, that, of that journey ourselves. So we've seen how cybersecurity is important uh, for enterprises and increasingly now all parts of the economy and people's lives. So I think that continue to be the case. I got to know Paul through a mutual introduction, even when he, before he started Horangi, I think that's when he just started thinking about the whole business of starting something. And so we kept in touch and got to know each other better over time. And that's how we typically work with our founders. We are open-minded, we share time with founders, we get to know them early, uh, and, and uh, we spend time helping them think through what it means to start certain businesses. Um, and then through that journey, we get to know the founders and really understand the business as well. We don't claim to know every business very, very well from the get-go, but we invest time and energy uh, to understand every business that we want to get into. And I think that's been helpful in forming conviction around the business that we eventually got into. Uh, for example, uh, cybersecurity. So in this case, I think it's, it's both a combination of our own experiences in the, in the space, plus having known Paul over a good period of time. Yeah, fantastic. So that leads on to the next question. When you look at the cybersecurity space, it's very clear that obviously the US and China lead, but why cybersecurity for Southeast Asia? I mean, why couldn't we just, you know, buy stuff off Trend Micro, for example. I mean, why did we actually need something like a Harangi, for example, that was based in Southeast Asia? Yeah, uh, there are a lot of uh, reasons why, you know, a, a company like Horangi exists and makes sense with Southeast Asia. Uh, one is, you know, the, the state of development across Southeast Asia is not a uniform market, but at the same time, it has its own unique um, uh, characteristics and traits. Uh, first of all, the consumer side is very mobile first, right? On the enterprise side, you know, they're all relatively speaking to a couple of steps behind in terms of uh, technology adoption, right? So for a lot of the enterprises going to cloud, for a lot of them is the first move, right? They don't have really an on-prem solution before they move into the cloud. For a lot of them moving the cloud is the very first step. And, and that's where Horangi is very focused on, right? Helping folks to be safe and to be secure uh, while operating a cloud-based infrastructure. So we see a lot of SMEs in Southeast Asia getting on the digitalization journey for, for the very first time and, and then you know, immediately going to the cloud and, and then having that sort of uh, a need to kind of plug the gaps, if you would, uh, this, is, this is very, very high. You know, pick a US or a, a, a Chinese company 
or a Japanese company, they have a very different journey, right? A lot of them had gone through layers and years and years of IT investments, transitioning from one, you know, uh, uh, era to the next era. So McAfee and all those branding are very familiar for them, but in Southeast Asia, it's a pretty open space, right? For a mm. lot of the companies, right? So for someone like Horangi, which is focused on a very topical area like cloud security, it's extremely timely for a market where digitalization is just beginning to take off across mm. the economy in particular. So is it makes it a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Is it fair to say, Koyi, in summary, that it's really a recognition that the markets are in Southeast Asia are quite different? For example, mobile first and just starting to get onto the cloud, and therefore you needed a localized, proper product market fit proposition. Yeah, and I would define product in a broader sense than just software. Mm. Uh, a lot of folks are getting on the cloud, getting on cybersecurity, et cetera, for the, you know, seriously for the first time. And so the product in itself may not be sufficient. You need to have the people around that, both in before buying and after buying, right? How do we get this thing going? What if something does happen? How do I respond to those events? So having the people on the ground is close, is close to the business, understand the environment. is actually quite an important part of the product, right? not just the software itself, but the people behind the product who's able to serve these customers when things do happen and help them through the journey of buying as well. So I think, you know, having the focus on Southeast Asia is a very, very key piece of that strategy. Uh, large brands in the US and Europe, you know, may not spend as much time in Southeast Asia, may not have as much resource focus on Southeast Asia. I think that's where the gap exists, right? It's not just a product software play, it's a product plus people play, if you would. And I think Orangi has the right combination. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Koyi. And and so you were obviously an investor pre-2020 and, you know, pre-COVID-19. Has the threat of cyber attacks, and I think everyone feels universally the same way anyway, greater than ever post-COVID, for example, surface area increasing uh, thanks to everyone working from home or the majority of people working from home? That's an obvious one, but uh, I guess, can you comment on maybe, you know, a confirmation of, yes, it is higher, and then what are the other reasons other than, for example, working from home, where the real threat of cyber attacks is greater than ever? You know, it's just anecdotally based on the amount of uh, junk mail I'm getting, soliciting, like, cash from me for various reasons, you know, it's anything to go with. I think that's, you're going to draw the crooks in, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, because of COVID, there are more transactions online now more of the processes are being done online now because of the remoteness of our work and, and, and learning, uh, et cetera. So there's an increase uh, in, in cyber um, security threats uh, and the value that's at risk, right? Any one breach and it just takes one breach can result in a lot of losses just because of the amount of activity and transaction that's happening online now. And the number of people who are online and ready to trade or transact online and send money across, across the network, right? Uh, so I think the risk has gone up a lot now because people are not more comfortable being online. So I think yeah, that really heightens and amplifies the need to uh, be really solid, right, from a cybersecurity perspective in the cloud in particular. Mm, mm, interesting. And great. Over to Lars. Lars, I think you're muted. Yeah. Lars can't hear you, Lars. Yeah. <laughs> Lars, we can't hear you, Lars. We are. Sorry. 
Um, please, uh, for our um, audience, put your uh, questions in the Q&A section. We already have the first ones uh, coming in. Thank you. Um, and now to the to the even uh, yeah to the to the cybersecurity expert um, that that grows and and builds the dream. Paul, you, you've worked across the the world, right? Um, what is it? And building on uh, what Tui was was. Um, uh, talking about what is it really that makes the cybersecurity climate in Singapore and Southeast Asia compelling for you that he said, hey, everywhere in the world, I could start a company, but it has to be here. Why? Yeah, great, great question, Lars. Um, so essentially, like, uh, I guess, like to, to get into how we started the company, I was actually working at Grab at the time. Uh, and of course, Grab is, is actually not a cloud first company, but was uh, had just transitioned to the cloud at the time I joined. Um, and yeah, I was looking for sort of help uh, in my role and trying to help me kind of uh, solve some of the security challenges we were facing there. And I couldn't find any uh, anybody that understood the cloud security problem in this region. I had had some experience in it uh, back then from from the Palantir days, but uh, needed an external vendor to help me out and uh, ended up having to go to the U.S. to get that support. Uh, so subsequently, after after that journey, uh, I saw the opportunity to create uh, Harangi ourselves, and we didn't know what product we wanted to do at first. We just knew we wanted to help people uh, uh, with cloud security. Um, and yeah, yeah, saw the opportunity, uh, took advantage of it, and you know, had been in cybersecurity my whole career, same as uh, my co-founder. So uh, it was kind of a good time, and we were here, uh, so it made a lot of sense. I think the, the reason that made it compelling is like the opportunity. Um, and also like uh, another thing that Ko Yi kind of touched on is like the challenges here are different from what they are in the US. Um, I think like, uh, as Ko Yi mentioned, like, you know, almost a lot of people had experiences with mobile phones, uh, not necessarily in Singapore, but in other markets um, before they had experiences with computers themselves. So I think um, uh, that challenge has been very interesting for us. And a lot of these new companies that are being created are, are cloud first. Uh, facing a, a lot of different challenges in terms of learning about the cloud and learning about the security aspects there uh, that we found really interesting, um, as well as the fragmented regulatory requirements that are coming up. I think all of those things kind of uh, fit into to why we built the company here. Fantastic. Um, you're a founder and uh, Horangi, um, besides working for all kinds of organizations, you're very passionate to bringing, uh, you know, um, security first as a mindset kind of shift to founders um, and, and not yeah. many, many uh, startups really say, hey, we have to also help other startups out. That's a great opportunity out there. Um, how, how can you explain to founders that they have to get this security first um, in, in their mindset? It's not an afterthought. Yeah, I think there's a great quote that I heard I've heard it actually multiple times throughout my life, but it's, it's the more we, we sweat during peace, the less we bleed during war. Uh, and I think that's completely true with cybersecurity. <laughs> the, the more you, uh, and I've heard this, it's a, I think it's a Chinese proverb, but I've also heard it in US military context as well. But uh, I think it's extremely uh, important to think about security that way. Um, because essentially like, you know, the more you're thinking about it when things aren't going wrong, the much better prepared you are when they do. Um, and I think like you stated this earlier as well, is like, it's not if, it's when. Um, and, you know, hopefully that the level of incident that you face in, in your career or your company is low, um, but uh, you need to be prepared to react. You need to know what to do. You need to know who to call and who can help you with that and, and support you in that. Um, so I think, yeah, like that security first mindset and being thinking about like what people could use to take advantage of you, being uh, make your employees also think about that is really important. And it actually doesn't cost anything, um, which is why I often recommend it to early stage startups, because, if you're thinking about like the threat, you're less likely for it to happen to you because you are going to be more prepared. Um, yeah. Um, um, interesting quote, doesn't cost you anything. And we have one of your investors on the line who wants you to sell. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about 
this side for, for a short while. Um, we can't ignore that, that COVID um, and the economic impact has also put a lot of pressure on all kinds of businesses. We've seen uh, the tourism uh, industry, of course, is struggling like no tomorrow, but a lot of technology companies are actually thriving and will come out of um, this, this pandemic stronger. We've seen that in previous economic crises that some technology firms really came out uh, mastering the situation because the um, opportunity was just there to say, hey, we don't need to discuss why anymore. How has um, you know, the pandemic, uh, and we're still in it, uh, had an impact on the cybersecurity business side? Yeah, uh, it's an interesting question. And um, I think only time will tell. Um, but um, in the initial stages, I think of like March, April, May, we did see some downturn and like people pushing off decisions um, uh, and things kind of slowing down a bit from the business angle. Um, but kind of after that, and we made some tough decisions to kind of like reorient our growth patterns for this year because uh, we were looking at a lot of growth, but uh, subsequently decided to, to go after less this year, which I think was a good decision. Um, yeah, and I, I think uh, what we've kind of seen after like towards late May is that a lot of the decisions that were pushed off in uh, March and April started closing um, and people continue to spend on security. And like, I actually had done a bit of research about this, like when COVID was happening. And actually, if you look at security traditionally through any sort of uh, uh, disaster or market downturn, actually stays generally pretty, pretty flat. And I think that's because of uh, regulatory requirements that are happening within different parts of the business. Uh, there's also, I think, like if you've built something and if you're thriving in a, a sort of a down uh, climate, you're actually at a bit more risk um, because uh, a lot of other people may not be. Um, so you, you do become the, the shining star in that aspect. So, so uh, it did take a little bit of a downturn over that, that Q2, but um, has kind of steadied and is still growing uh, at current pace. Glad to hear that. And maybe last but not least from, from this kind of question uh, round, um, in, in terms of attacks, what kinds are you, are you seeing now? And I know you're focused on, on cloud, cloud security. Um, yeah. has, has also this year brought a, a change to the, the actors that are there and the types of, of, of how they want to attack or are attacking? And, and how will that shape out if we have a crystal ball in the, in the future? Yeah, I think like, I mean, like, I, I think from the cloud aspect, like, uh, none of that's changing, like, it's been the same, like, um, I mean, there's definitely more people moving to the cloud, which I think, of course, increases the incidents that you guys will hear about. Um, but I, <clears throat> I still think it's a large problem. Um, and that like, like Gartner puts out this statistic, which, of course, helps us, us quite a bit, but 99% of cloud security fail failures will be the customer's fault um, through 2025, right? Um, and that's basically because like, as you make this transition from on-prem or you start setting up in the cloud, like the most common mistake that's made is not AWS messing up or uh, GCP messing up your security. It's like the users that are using AWS make a misconfiguration, right? Which is not actually dissimilar to the same problems that you'd have in a, a traditional IT infrastructure. It's just like different, right? And it's much easier to make that mistake because things are rapidly changing. Um, so I think from the cloud security side, like we'll see more uh, security issues and I think that will just continue uh, because of more cloud usage and more people getting involved. And of course the transition period from a traditional IT environment to the cloud is, is difficult, right? And you have to train your security teams, you have to train your developers, all these things that take a lot of investment and time and you know, people take time to learn. And generally I think in security, people are always the, the weakest link anyways. Um, but in terms of what's changed, uh, I think there's obviously been a lot of uh, coronavirus-related emails, which uh, you kind of touched on as well. Um, yeah, and I, there's a ton of um, sort of attacks that are coming out against organizations that may uh, be supporting the efforts. So, um, yeah, there's one from, from WHO, and then, like, there was a Spanish company that was trying to sell, like, PPE 
um, essentially like uh, accidentally uh, wired like 1.5 million euros to the, to the wrong place. Um, so I think that type of stuff is going to be targeted much more and like uh, getting involved in the transaction, knowing who's making money during this time and who's doing high transaction volume type stuff uh, uh, is, is, is going to be uh, taken advantage of. And, you know, I think most of these cases actually uh, process tends to help more than technology. Um, but ultimately, it's people process and technology that, solves, that helps solve the problem. Hey, Paul, that was the classical PPT, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, Lars, on to our favorite section, rapid fire. Okay, rapid fire, both for Kui and for, for Paul. So I'll, I'll give a question out. Normally it's a yes or no, left or right answer. I just need a one sentence answer, answer from each of you, okay? So cyber warfare, the new technology battleground, yes or no? Paul. Uh, yeah, I'd say yes. And actually, I would argue that it's the new battleground because uh, even governments are using it as the initial force. Yeah. Kui? Yes or no? No, it's out of space. Okay. Space <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. Next, uh, Southeast Asia and cybersecurity leading the pack or playing catch up? Kui first. Playing catch up, for sure. Paul, besides yeah, you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, playing catch up as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, Cybersecurity's biggest enemy: ignorant users or motivated hackers? Paul first. Uh, I think it's ignorant users. <laughs> users, yeah, user errors always. Okay. Good. Um, next one: John McAfee, misunderstood genius or just a nut job? Paul. Who was it again? I'm sorry. John McAfee. John, yeah. Uh, can I say both? I think like, I mean, I haven't been following like his, his opinions on security too much, but I've definitely seen some of the, the other side of it. <laughs> He's a crypto genius, so I got to give it to him. <laughs> okay. Two more to go. What's easier to protect, cloud or on-premise? Kui. Boy, that's a tough one. I would say on-prem is easier. You can just shut things down and then you'll be okay, right? Super um, glue USB drives. <laughs> just turn off the power switch and then everything is you're safe now, so. Paul? Yeah, I'm gonna go cloud on this one. Um, okay, yeah. interesting. And, and now the last one, I, where I need you to be honest with us, your biggest personal security mistake thus far was, Kui. Um, haven't been hacked, haven't done anything wrong so far, so I struggle to think of one. Yeah. Don't go and attack me right now, guys, so stop attacking me. Just, you just made the call out for everybody try to prove you wrong. Big right? target on my back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've, yeah, I've definitely clicked on my fair share of uh, phishing emails. Um, uh, you know, I think some of them are getting good and not, not, not in Harangi, thankfully, but I, I have clicked on them before, admittedly. Um, but I think like ultimately that's the mistake. It's like what you do after that is, is what's important because everyone will eventually click on one. Are you still waiting for that Nigerian prince to wire the money over? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been a long wait, but you know. Okay. Good. So now from, uh, now it's going over to Chris and the pitch. And yeah, so the part that the startups all love to hear is how do you actually get the money? So Kui, what do you need to hear in a pitch 
so that, you know, frankly, you don't run away. Uh, what are some things that we need to say to you, not say to you, uh, to make sure that we can get good engagement with you? Yeah, I think broadly speaking, I think, you know, the motivation and why is the market that interesting, the opportunity that interesting, I think is, is deceptively kind of simple, but really hard to communicate and to excite people about, right? Um, both in terms of why is that a market? How big is that market? How easy is that market to be captured? And then why is it that what you're doing allows you to kind of be there? Uh, I think the, comp the combination of that is it's important to really be crystal clear about and be very compelling around. Um, I think, you know, folks are able to say one or the other, but then being able to kind of build it into a story. Uh, Lars is, you know, storyteller. I think the, the importance of being able to weave everything together and, and, and create this clarity around what is exactly at stake, I think is important. Um, a lot of folks are subject matter expert. They get excited about what they do, but to communicate that across the board, you know, across the table to someone who may be relatively new to the space is an art, right? Uh, it's important to be able to articulate those, uh, those value propositions. What are some of the mistakes that founders make when they pitch to you? Um, I think, I think, you know, just, uh, being able to connect the dots in terms of, uh, where they're at right now and how it leads to a big company, um, you know, to be very, very clear, venture capital investments is a very specific slice of the investment world. We're looking for outsized return. So we're not looking for just a viable business, but we need to be able to understand how a company at this point at a very, very early stage can lead to a very major outcome, right? That leads to a 20, 40 X kind of returns of our initial investment. So it's not just about viability and not just about, you know, potential profitability, but it's about why would it become big? So, so I think that's what VCs ourselves in, in our very specialized corner of the investment world look for in, in our investment opportunity. So I think a lot of founders, you know, uh, may have missed that, that understanding. Uh, and they talk about how the business could be viable, et cetera. That's not sufficient from a VC perspective, right? So again, going back to my initial point, why is this a big potential business company? You know, uh, mm. it's, it's always the, the question, the missing piece. Mm, mm, mm. Cool. And Paul, you've been successful uh, raising the money and getting excellent investors on the cap table. Uh, what have you learned during the process? And maybe to the extent that you're comfortable, uh, if you can share how your pitch has changed, maybe uh, as a function of the times changing or maybe, you know, as your company has grown. Yeah, I think like, I mean, Koyi uh, brought out some excellent points and those, those are the major, like I think the major things that you need to nail um, uh, from our side. Like I wouldn't find myself particularly good at, but I have a great team that uh, helps me and uh, makes me much more efficient at doing it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I think um, generally like, the pitch has changed. Like uh, for us, like we're a product and services company, as uh, you mentioned before. I think generally, in a, with a lot of VCs, services can be a dirty word. Um, but ultimately, it's important. I think, especially in this market, to sort of uh, educate the customer and help them along the buying journey. Um, and I think, like before COVID, it was it was kind of a dirty word with a lot of VCs, uh, uh, amongst still being uh, excluded. But um, you know, I think post COVID, they're starting to realize that hey, like you know, something that's thirty to forty percent margin pretty scalable, are not as scalable as software, but uh, pretty scalable given like what's going on in the world, like and helping us getting closer to profit, profitability is not a bad thing, right? Um, and I think like uh, in terms of how it helps you sell, 
uh, I think that's also really important to connect and was important to connect in, in our context. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, uh, and, and the funny thing that I always always explain to, to VCs is like, oh, 30 to 40% margins is better than, you know, 90% of the business you've invested in, right? Um, but uh, I think oftentimes, I think, um, you know, the scalability is where it comes into effects, which, uh, you know, Cody uh, very uh, effectively mentioned, um, you need to prove that it's scalable. Uh, so we have software behind our services that enables that. Um, yeah, and I think um, COVID wise, yeah, it's, it comes more down to the uh, basics of the business, like not overspending uh, those types of things, which, you know, we've made our own mistakes at before. Um, but now I think are on a much better path in terms of like where we're going, uh, where the business is going. Um, but yeah, I, I think people are much more serious about the fundamentals, uh, less, I mean, growth is still important, um, but, but scalable uh, growth, uh, as well as like, you know, maybe not profitable is wrong with the wrong word, but like growth that is, um, you know, uh, margin creative. I'm trying to think of the word that, that used there, but essentially. Uh, Service is okay. And uh, 40 and 30% as a gross margin on a sale that you wouldn't have otherwise had is better than a 100% of a zero margin on a sale that you, would, you don't, don't get. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think that's completely true. And yeah, I mean, in some businesses, like, so like in my space, I was working on intelligence and cybersecurity problems. Uh, but they also work a lot with uh, large organizations like uh, banks and um, uh, big uh, consumer brands, et cetera, to help them understand uh, what's happening in their uh, um, in their customer base. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think solving the world's hardest problems is, you know, this, I worked there 2009, 2016. Um, uh, so I spent a lot of time in terms of helping, helping build that, that company, uh, uh, mostly overseas, actually. Most of my career was spent overseas. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I actually think they did solve some of the work world's hardest problems like the stuff I was working on in Afghanistan the stuff I was working on uh in in New Zealand and Korea was all uh quite interesting and very important problems um that that ultimately like needed to be solved Paul I can't imagine that New Zealand has problems but uh anyway to Lars on to the next segment <laughs> so now we come already uh to the Q&A section from from our uh, participants from the audience and the uh, uh, questions are coming in, please keep them coming and, and vote them up. So I directly just go with the order as decided by our, our guests. Um, number one, how do you do due diligence specifically on cybersecurity firms, maybe for Kui? How do you do due diligence, especially for cybersecurity firms? Yeah, um, you know, depending on the stage of the business, uh, clearly the due diligence would, you know, overweigh on different pieces of it, whether it's a customer reference check, uh, market studies, uh, or technolo technology uh, due diligence. You know, cybersecurity tends to be a very technical space, right? Understanding the underlying approaches, uh, the algorithm, um, the kind of uh, impact on infrastructure, the kind of cyber attacks that it's trying to prevent and the, the methods that he's using to prevent it, all those are, can be quite technical in nature. And even within that, you know, it's very hard to get into the nitty gritty details of it. You know, it can be quite a black box as we call it. You, you don't know what's inside. You know, they, some folks just claim it works, right? And it's very hard to know exactly why or how. And that's where I think, you know, access to a network of experts is quite key. Uh, folks who can look at it, know what kind of questions to ask, to probe, uh, the robustness of the answers uh, and do actual technical tests on the product itself, if it's already out there, I think it's, it's, quite, it's quite important for a cybersecurity product type play. Um, services business is quite obviously different. Uh, services business, I would think, is more of a function of customer conversation 
and then really sizing up what the problem is that's being solved you know, in, in the market. Well, otherwise, I think it's a, it's a technical field. So access and experts would be quite, quite important there. Okay. Then maybe, thank you. Then maybe the next question um, is, is a technical question to some extent, and I'll start with Paul. How can AI, artificial intelligence, play an increasing role in both cyber attack and defense? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, um, <clears throat> yeah, I think Palantir, like, like their word on this specifically that they talk about a lot is human computer symbiosis. And I think that's where AI can really help um, and where it actually is already helping, which is basically identifying issues that humans should review. The problem with the cybersecurity problem is there's just so much data and so much information out there. Um, so it's not something that a human can uh, review in a reasonable time uh, frame. Uh, so where AI is, is helping now, potentially a lot more in the future, is by filtering through the data to identify things that might be uh, a threat, right? Um, and I think that that is helping quite a bit. Um, now, I've seen some stuff, which is very interesting, and I haven't seen it actually deployed in environments, but I've seen the product uh, 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 advertised as where it actually will take action. I think uh, that is also very interesting. Um, but again, I think we're a long way away from it being AI versus AI. Um, sure, like, you know, some people call things AI that m might not be what I consider uh, AI. Uh, uh, and I think like my talented background uh, kind of has a very specific definition around that. Um, but yeah, I think like uh, in a lot of ways, it's going to be uh, making the decision easier for the humans. And I think it will be that way at least for the next 10 years. Uh, uh, after that, or, you know, maybe sometime before that, depending on what happens uh, in the world, you know, it could be a, a place where AI is actually taking active uh, decisions to block um, uh, or um, uh, sort of uh, 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 attack, uh, even in some cases, right, depending on who's using it, I guess. Um, but ultimately, like, you know, there's always a human at the under, other end of, of all attacks uh, still in this case. Um, and I, I think there has to be a human on both ends of the problem to actually solve it completely. Thanks, Paul. Um, Kui, I want, want to rephrase the question a little bit for you from the invest to get an answer from the investor side. Does, does every investment you're looking after or uh, are considering right now needs to have an AI component or is just kind of the flavor of the month? If it doesn't make sense, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, if it doesn't make sense, it just doesn't make sense. I think the same, the, the same goes for blockchain and everything else, right? Uh, when it goes password, you know, uh, by the way, these are legitimate technologies. I think it's just the application for the problem at hand needs to connect, right? The dots need to connect. I do agree with Paul that, you know, with uh, a couple of things are driving the need to be able to um, process information at scale. And that's what artificial intelligence is really good at for a certain kind of information, right? Mm -hmm. Even the amount of transaction, the amount of data that's being consumed every day, uh, the amount of time we're spending online, the amount of money we're spending online, Right, uh, the data that's available now online to be able to process and identify potential issues, um, human beings are just not going to be able to handle it. Mm. Right, you need machines, you need mathematics, you need algorithms, you need scale to be able to manage the the deluge of all these information that's coming at you. So artificial intelligence is squarely, you know, important, right, uh, in the rising tide of uh, data information and transactions. Because you mentioned one other technology, we have a question about it. It's, will the use of blockchain technology truly improve the security of information transfer on the internet? Who want to take a step at it first? That's yours, Paul. You're the blockchain expert. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of great applications for blockchain um, uh, in general. Um, I'm not sure if security is one of them. I think I've seen some decent uh, applications for it. 
but I, I think the importance of speed and like vast information processing is, is quite important uh, just because of like what Cody mentioned. There's just so much information being stored and analyzed um, that needs to happen extremely quickly. Like where blockchain actually, I think actually is, excels is more like if you think about security and competent, confidentiality, integrity uh, and availability, uh, uh, blockchain actually helps most in the integrity space. Just making sure the data is actually the data that you want to see. Um, which there's some applications for that in security, but but a lot of them actually have to do a lot more with the confidentiality and avail availability. Um, and most, uh, uh, I think most security technologies uh, um, uh, wouldn't benefit from blockchain, but but there's use cases for it, um, just not like a ton. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It could be it could be useful in places where, you know, sort of like a, a lack of a trust is an issue, right? Um, and you want to be able to trust something that you may not have. Uh, access to before, for example, logs, right? Keeping a log of what's happening at one particular location, node, server, et cetera, you know, signing those aside, but you know, there are other technologies around blockchain that could make those, those logs distributed, trusted, right? Without having a central authority to, to stamp it. I mean, that could be one application, for example, but that's a very specific case, right? So the question is, how do you motivate a big business out of these uh, potential use cases? Good. Um, then the next question is, um, Deloitte mentioned that Singapore is most exposed in Southeast Asia, I assume, uh, but also the most prepared. But why are we still seeing large scale cyber attacks recently, like, for example, the Singh Health cyber attack? Paul, do you yeah. agree with the statement they're most exposed, but also best prepared? I, I don't know, I don't necessarily agree with most exposed because uh, I would say actually like you know it's kind of contradictory right like I mean you could I guess maybe by exposed they could mean like the most like sort of technologically advanced therefore potentially most exposed but even in that case like I would think like Indonesia has a lot more people and a lot more uh, exposure if you're looking at the people maybe companies because there's more HQs here but but definitely most prepared I do agree with um, um, but but I think the second part of the question like there's a reality where like you can never, like it's like cr crime, right? Like physical crime. You can never completely eradicate it. You can put every single mitigation in place uh, in terms of like what you want to do. And I think, you know, obviously like there's a very low crime rate in Singapore, um, but there'll still be stuff that happens, right? Like always, no matter what. <laughs> and we always remind it, low crime doesn't mean no crime. <laughs> yes, yes, I've seen that, yeah. Uh, and I, I think cybersecurity is the same, right? Like you, you can spend millions and billions of dollars and most of the big banks do this, but they still have issues, right? They still have uh, leaks. They still have uh, attacks that happen to them. Um, and like really what you're doing in cybersecurity is mitigating as much as possible and enabling that like very fast response to handle it, um, which I think Singapore has done a great job of, which, yeah. which they do. I, I do. I do feel that you know, cybersecurity is most, uh, or cyber threat is most significant at two ends of the spectrum. When a company is getting online for the first time, right? They have nothing and you have no experience and no resource or expertise around that or when the, the business has been through a lot of generations and years and years of IT investments. And because there are generational shifts and complexity that's been built over time, there are a lot of gaps and holes in between that are left you know, un unaddressed, right? And mm -hmm. the complexity then leads to vulnerability. So those two extremes tend to kind of create exposure. Mm -hmm. right? And Singapore is probably on the other spectrum, right? Many, many years of investment in many, many types of systems, very complex now, many generations, Etc. Unpatched stuff, processes that are not updated, etc., which lend leads itself to 
to vulnerabilities that uh, other countries may not have uh, at the same level. Mm. So it sounds like, uh, you know, one of those things to look at is a, is a cyber audit, if you will. You know, how prepared are you? What have you got in place uh, in between all these legacy systems? We're getting a lot of questions, uh, I guess, on the human capital side of things and, and on the, 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 social, the social side of things. Um, I, you know, the poll confirmed that there is a, an awareness and maybe I'll just use the word uh, increased anxiety around it all. Um, so maybe more of a, a general question, you know, how do we actually get number one, uh, more talented cybersecurity professionals in this ecosystem? And number two, actually, how do we uh, raise the awareness um, of cybersecurity? So either Paul or, or Koyi, uh, we're getting some of these type of um, comments and questions come through. Yeah, I can take a crack and let like you go after. Um, I think on the uh, creating the the uh, um, sort of skills and the capabilities. Um, yeah, I think it comes down to like the schooling, making it interesting, right? Like I think um, actually the second part of like you know frankly like what increases investment in cybersecurity is like people getting hacked, right? Um, it's like um, you know like there's two things. It's regulation, of course, uh, and fear. Uh, the fear is generally uh, increased by people getting hacked. The regulation, of course, is, is controlled by the government. Singapore government is doing a, a good job of regulation, and now most of the governments in the region are following that. Um, but also, like, you know, companies getting hacked is, is also increasing the sort of awareness, interest from uh, both the talent uh, as well as the companies in terms of how they defend themselves. Uh, so I think that is just a natural progression. Uh, as people start moving much more into the cloud and more uh, online, like that is just going to happen more, uh, which I think will ultimately increase that. But on the training and skill set side, um, it's the schooling, it's the making it interesting, making it a, a part of uh, uh, life, making people think about it. Because like, you know, ultimately, like, you know, like the kids growing up now, like cybersecurity is part of their life, right? They they know what phishing is, they know all this stuff um, because it's been happening to them since they were kids, right? They play video games, people steal their video games account. It happened to me when I was a kid. It was, it was horrifying when that first happened. Um, but like. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a realization of like what, what the world uh, uh, is like and what the internet means. And I, I think like that type of stuff and then being online uh, the whole time will get them interested in helping to solve this problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, really the investment from, from the government companies like Harangi and other companies that help uh, sort of get interns uh, and create uh, the talent from, from the schools is, is what's really going to help. Mm. Koyi, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, you know, um, this might be more specific to Singapore, but I think it applies across the various countries, you know, in the region. Uh, the whole concept of uh, cyber defense at a national level is rising to a very different level now, right? Additional investments has been built, uh, has been injected to build specific, you know, defense teams, right? Being making that part of the national service, you know, experience. So some folks are kind of directed to cybersecurity now, right? As part of the national service, instead of, you know, being an a tank commander or whatever, right? Um, now people are defending the country on the on the cyberspace. I think what that will do, at least on the sharper end of the uh, the spectrum, will lead to um, good, you know, uh, experts, uh, innovative solutions, uh, a good crop of folks who may actually come out and start new companies uh, that's innovative and 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 and, and interesting in the in the cybersecurity space, as you did see in in Israel, for example, right? I think Singapore does have the condition for that, uh, given the the training uh, in universities, et cetera, that can prepare people for, for those kinds of career. So I think, I think you know, in the context of Singapore, we do have that possibility and advantage, uh, but you know, clearly across the region, I can see the uh, awareness and the need at the national level as well to create those, those capabilities in the country. 
So I, I, I'm quite hopeful that we'll see a lot more cybersecurity professionals at, at multiple levels. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I don't know if this is appropriate. I mean, is it, is it really, again, just picking up on some of the questions and maybe the anxiety, is cybersecurity something more around to be aware but not necessarily alarmed? And within that, I mean, I'm seeing questions on, you know, how do we actually create an immune cyber ecosystem? I don't think we can, but I'll, I'll get your comments on that. And the issue of, you know, what about all my information on social media portholes, uh, et cetera? Um, I think the audience would love to find out about, not a guarantee, of course, but, you, you know, to, to what extent are you aware of measures in place to make sure that, um, you know, the, the relative risks aren't, aren't, uh, aren't out there? And, and then uh, whether you agree or disagree, uh, should we be aware but not alarmed? Or alert but not alarmed? Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll go first. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll go first. You know, I think maybe with the exception of Singapore, but for most folks who have lived in cities that are generally has some rough edges around it, some dangerous neighborhoods that you need to be aware of, uh, the cyberspace is like that, right? It's generally safe, but you just got to be skeptical enough, right? Be cautious enough to assume that bad things do look around the corner, right? So it's both awareness and just a heightened sense of uh, skepticism about things. Don't believe things on the face value, right? Really try to understand it. I think increasingly so on the cyber cyberspace is really borderless, right? I mean, you have folks who are in Nigeria sitting in the, you know, in the bathrobe trying to scam another thousand bucks from you. So, so I think you know cyberspace is truly a very complex neighborhood. Uh, so be savvy, be aware, be conscious. Uh, but live life, right? I think you know, 80%, 90% of the population don't really get attacked, you know, deliberately. Uh, uh, but you know, there may be a small percentage they get attacked because of who they are, right? But most people aren't on, on, on those uh, people. Paul. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a good point, Koyi. And like, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's no different from the physical space, right? Like, like you're gonna lock your doors to your house, you're gonna lock lock the the doors to your cars when you leave. Uh, and you take precautions like in your physical life, you look, look both ways before you cross the road. I think the cyberspace is no different, right? If you're like using two-factor authentication, you're using complex passwords, you're that much more safe than than the people that aren't, right? And I think ultimately most people are uh, uh, um, like crimes of opportunity, not necessarily targets. Um, and on a personal level, that that's kind of like what you need to de defend against, uh, unless you're of course a celebrity or um, you know, uh, uh, a famous VC or, or whatnot. Uh, and people know you have a lot of money, at least at, in your, your, uh, hands, uh, you know, like, I think there's a certain level of, uh, caution that you would need to increase, but uh, for the general people out there, I think, yeah, it's, it's doing the basics, right. Uh, thinking about it and being cognizant that you could be a target, but most likely you would be a target of opportunity, not a specific target. Um, which I think is very similar to Cody's, uh, uh, example about the city. Um, yeah, and I think on the immunity side, like I don't actually think you can create uh, something that's immune. I think this is again akin to the the physical space. Uh, there always be some level of risk. There always be people trying to take advantage of folks. Um, uh, and like, I mean, for the foreseeable future, I I don't think there is any form of immunity. It's it's more about uh, taking the precautions uh, for yourself or for your organization uh, to make sure that the risk is limited and having a plan in case something does happen. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, one last thing I would say there is that, you know, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. So having some healthy <laughs> level of skepticism about life and people in general is not a bad thing. It's pretty healthy. Yeah, true.
Although um, I, I, I did have a couple of friends who are American citizens. They did get that check in Singapore from Donald Trump. So uh, that, that one is real. <laughs> as long as it didn't bounce, right? Um, okay. <laughs> we, we have one more question here and uh, we already uh, uh, well, close to wrapping up. So let's, let's do maybe one, maybe two more questions. Um, one is from Chris Wong on the topic of services. How, does, how do our guests think of achieving scalability and efficiency in cybersecurity services in the region? Is SaaS the only solution? Um, and he, he shares specifically, I observed the unique supply demand dynamics in the region. Um, what, what can drag scalability and efficiency a little bit, right? Uh, scarcity of, tech, of, of talent on one side And, and customers, especially enterprises on the other side, tending to expect more hand-holding from the vendor than maybe in other parts of the world. So wrapping it up in a nutshell, and that's the big question today, how can you scale, how can you really scale a cybersecurity services business in this part of the world? Paul, maybe yeah, how yes. you bring it, and Kui, how you want, he wants you to do it. <laughs> yes, yeah, sir. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, those are both great points. And I think like uh, we've experienced both of them. I'd say on B, like, I mean, I have a lot of experience in enterprise software with, with Palantir. And I, like, I think that's actually a global thing. Like, like enterprises generally expect a lot more than uh, uh, small businesses. And, you know, there's a lot more handholding that needs to be done just because of the complexity of their environments and just the, the like, not only the physical, but also the, the people there. Um, so that I think is to be expected anywhere. Um, might be a little bit worse in this region, but yeah, ultimately I think that any any enterprise software company is going to have that issue. Um, on the relatively scarcity of uh, qualified technical talent, um, so, so what we've done is we build a platform that sort of enables this, so it makes it easier for people to complete the tasks that are need to be completed. Certain functions about uh, the security services business can be automated. Uh, we have uh, automated those functions um, and enabled the the uh, essentially the consultants to focus on the things that, that matter, uh, the real technical challenges that actually matter in terms of like when they're doing security testing or when they're doing incident response or, or when they're sort of helping companies uh, um, go on the right path in terms of security. Um, yeah, and I that, that goes back to the human-computer symbiosis. We let the computers kind of do what they're good at, uh, enable the humans to make the decisions to uh, enable our customers. Um, I mean, on the technical talent, I think, I, I think that is also a good point. It is quite hard and competitive to hire people in this region. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because, you know, I think that's a, a, a demand signal, right? That means there is demand. Um, and I think um, uh, that, that means someone will have to fill it eventually, uh, whether that's like a product or a service um, uh, as well. And I think what we've done to mitigate that is by building the training in. So taking in uh, younger folks out of school, uh, having a, a training curriculum and enabling them to, to grow and, and learn how to use our, our platform. We, maybe just to, you know, as, we, as we're coming to the end already of the web, webinar, maybe top two, three tips that you can give entrepreneurs and startups if they want to scale uh, a services or a heavy service business in the region. What works, what doesn't work so that they don't have to make all the mistakes themselves? Yeah, I think be very disciplined about measuring productivity and, and, and how what you're building in the software and the automation piece is, is changing that. Um, I, I agree with Paul, and, and this question really hits it around the nail, is that it's impossible to scale if it's just a pure people type services business. It always has to be automated, right? Mm -hmm. Think about how you supercharge your, your people. Um, and, and, you know, in, when it comes to cybersecurity, ironically, it's actually a very people-centric business. 
right? 99% of the attacks, if you think from an attacker perspective, are automated, right? They're trying to block. They're using automated uh, approaches to send out a lot of emails and phishing attack to see what breaks through and trying their luck. So automation to counter that is actually quite effective, right? But there's a 1% very specific, you know, highly intentful attacks. But as a human being behind that, trying to figure out how to get around your defenses, and that's where you need a human flexibility, smarts, and non-linearity in terms of thinking, right? So well, I think automation remains to be the case. Um, human touch is important. Human intelligence and non-linearity is important. But automation to, right, to be able to match a scale of, uh, of the requirements, I think, is, is highly, highly important. We're living in a unique age right now where we have a lot of tools to allow us to scale things out. Artificial intelligence is one of them. Uh, blockchain could be potentially another one of them. So really seizing on these technology to scale the software, but don't forget, you know, how you kind of supercharge the human side of things is okay. quite important for a services business. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Koyi and Paul, for being here. Uh, you know, the sound bites that I like the best uh, from Koyi was artificial intelligence is squarely important. And Paul, I, I just love the sound of it. You know, cyber is lime crime. Uh, so thank you very much for, for coming on and sharing with us. Uh, at Southeast Asia Connect, we're here for our tech entrepreneurs and investors. Our ninth episode will be in a fortnight on the 17th of September. If you're new to the Southeast Asia webinar series, your email has been added to our mailing list so that you can stay informed on our upcoming episodes. And in addition, all our previous episodes can be found on the Northridge Partners website at www.northridgepartners.com or at www.southeastasiaconnect.com. Most importantly, thank you to our listener community. You could have been anywhere else, but you chose here to be with us and to be engaged to support our entrepreneurs as they harness the technology that they have available to build a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm Chris Tran signing off and... Lars saying bye. Bye, Paul. Bye, Kui. Bye, everybody. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for Goodbye. Everyone. Yeah.